we're going to continue on in chapter 2. We're going to continue on in exploring what Paul is talking about in the book of Galatians, and we are so glad that you are here. I'm totally taking text messages during the service, and so, you know, last week we have, um, you know, we've got, we've got comments coming in on, genu- on, on general in Slack, and sometimes I got, you know, distracted by them. There's a joke, oh, I think we just distracted Rob, and that's fine, you know, um, because I want this to be a conversation, I want it to be something where we're able to communicate together, not just me say, this is exactly what needs to be said, because there's sometimes some amazing things that come in on Slack. And so, please, continue the, that type of conversation, and, uh, and continue on. If you're not yet on Slack, you can again go to promisechurch.community, and today's message, there's a, uh, there's a box in which you can submit your responses and your questions and your feedback, and I will also get that as well. Um, not every piece that I get can I read, but I'll be able to get to some of them. They are up on my screen beside my notes. And so, uh, just, just to let you know. Today we're actually looking at the exact same passage this week that we looked at last week. Because last week we understood it in the context of how do we deal with, uh, with conflict. But this week I actually want to understand it in terms of what are the implications of what's happening What are the implications of what's happening in the letter itself? Because that really matters for where the letter goes and what it's saying to us. And so that's why we're going into it that way today. Our text is going to be Galatians chapter 2, 11 to 14. Um, What happened in the section before that was Paul outlined the reason why he had authority to make the moves he's making in the passage. And this, and today, he's talking about protecting the implications of the gospel message. And we see that Paul has a conflict with Cephas. And, uh, and so that's what we're getting into today. And I pray that you will be blessed in it. Let me read the text. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before all of them, if you, though a Jew, Live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews when you aren't even consistent with that? And so this is a really important passage, you know, for, for a lot of reasons. And, uh, and, and we're going to just dig into that. You know, in grade five, I wasn't the most popular kid. And uh, everybody has their, their stories of how they were bullied and how they were excluded and whatever, and, and we all look for a way to fit into our inner ring. You know, that's, that's what we look for, that's what we want to see, and uh, the idea of inner ring it was articulated by C.S. Lewis in a really profound way um, in Screwtape Letters, and just a really, really good idea there where it's like, I want, to, I want to be included, and you never really feel like you're fully included. So in grade five, I am, you know, I've got these friends, and I'm working through, and, and, uh, 
you know, I, I had this connection with this, with this kid on my street. And we were friends. You know, we're good friends and we're hanging out and having fun until we get to school. And as soon as we got to school, we weren't friends anymore. We were no longer being, you know, able to, able to, to hang out because there were people who were cooler than me and I got pushed out. I got pushed aside because I, I wasn't cool enough. I wasn't, I wasn't the right person to hang out with. And, and so I was pushed aside. There was a sense of abandonment, a sense of confusion, a sense of hypocrisy in what was happening. And so that was a hard feeling, the feeling like I belonged, and then when the cool people came, I didn't belong. And what, what I'm drawing a parallel here to is the story of what's happening here is centered around something called table fellowship. It's the sense of belonging that these people have. They, they share this sense of belonging. They share this sense of community. And when the cool people from James came, the Gentiles were pushed out. Very, very challenging. You know, table fellowship is inclusion into the family of Abraham or the family of God. See, Jews don't eat with Gentiles. I've been referring a couple of times to the exile, and in the Jewish virtual library, it talks about, um, it talks about how the Jews in the first century viewed table fellowship. And I'm just going to read it to you here because it's important, but it comes, from, it comes from a library, so it's not in my words. Anyways, here we go. In the book, To Be a Jew, the rabbis suggest that kashrut laws are designed as a call to holiness. The ability to distinguish between right and wrong, good and evil, pure and defiled, the sacred and the profane. It's very important in Judaism. Imposing rules on what you can and cannot eat ingrains that type of self-control. In addition, it elevates the simple act of eating into a religious ritual. The Jewish dinner is often compared to the temple altar in rabbinic literature. Oh, wait a second. What's the significance of what's happening here? See, the Jews, when they, when they existed in the first temple period under Solomon, all of their religious experience, the whole, the whole religious cult, as it's called in academia, the religious cult, the religious practice, all of it was done at the temple. You're, you engage with God at the temple, but the problem is, is the Babylonians came and took Israel, and then the Assyrians came, and they, and they destroyed the temple. And you've got this total destruction of Jerusalem, the, the laying flat, the, the walls are broken, the temple is in ruins, and the people of God are fully carried into exile. And the purpose of exile was to assimilate the culture. It was to assimilate people and say, no, you are no longer what you were, you are now us, and your children's children's children are going to be part of our empire. They will only know our empire. And the Jews, they were different. 
Because they had the law, they had Torah written on their hearts and in their minds and in their scrolls, they took that with them. And sometimes they maybe even smuggled it. And they started house meetings. And in here, we have the beginnings of the synagogue. We have these local temples or places of gathering. They're not fully temples, but they're places of gathering where the, where the men specifically would gather and sit in a circle and they would pull the scrolls and they would read them to remind each other of the faithfulness of God. And they would do what De- Deuteronomy 6 says. They would teach those stories to their children and to their children's children. And the Jews defied social expectation because they were, they remained rooted. And how did they remain rooted? They separated out those who were part of them and those who were not. And they retained their identity without a nation. It is a miracle of God and a miracle of persistence and a miracle of of just dedication that they retained their identity. And they did it through table fellowship. They did it through gathering with, with food and around the Torah, and they spoke, and they continued to build their community. Well, in Second, Judaism, in, in Second Temple Judaism, they had their temple, and then it got threatened again by the Roman Empire. And what did they do? They expand Judaism all throughout the Roman Empire, and they have their, their synagogues, and they have their table fellowship, their kashrut laws. And they are a holy people. That is, a people set apart from the rest of culture. Okay, well, this is huge because this is what's happening here in this passage. See, the people who, who, were, Christ, who were following Christ, the apostles, were saying that the Gentiles were allowed in, that the Gentiles were becoming part of this promise. Well, the threat is to the integrity of the Jewish people people. And so, we have this threat happening that says, if we let these people sit with us, if we let them in, then our separation is now diminished. They need to do something to prove they're really part of us. They need to do something to show. And so that something was circumcision. That something was to say that the males who have converted to Jesus, they need to be circumcised so that they can sit with us, so that they can be fully included. Okay, so we can understand Cephas's position here. We can understand that that Cephas thought that he was protecting the integrity of Judaism. He's protecting the message of the Messiah. He's saying, no, we can't sit with you. He's protecting, and he's saying, we need to do something different. We need you to be um, made in, in a way that you're not polluting the sacred moment of eating. And Paul calls out his hypocrisy. See, Paul has outlined why his gospel is important and why it's valid to the Gentiles. And everyone's already agreed. He's referring back to a time when they were in Jerusalem. And he's referring back and saying, we agree. Jesus makes it open to all nations. The cross is what invites everybody in. 
We all agree. And now Paul is defending the particularity of what that looks like. See, everybody agreed in theory. Oh, yeah, everybody can come in. But, but, but what, what does that mean in action? When we think about this in terms of church culture, promised church culture, I want to be very clear. It is very easy to say, oh, we're open to everybody. Anybody can come in. And it is even easier to slip into the same hypocrisy by when somebody comes in that might make me feel uncomfortable, we send out those vibes. We exclude by these simple social cues that don't really invite them in. When we gather again as a, as a church, it really needs to be about inviting people in and inviting people to lunch, inviting people to dinner and not leaving people out. It really is about saying, let's, let's get radical about this inclusion because we place our faith in the faithfulness of Jesus. It really is that intimate that it calls us to call people into table fellowship with us. Even though we don't have kashrut laws, we have social expectations and social laws, and like people tend to be with like people, and, and we want to blow that up. We want to blow that up as a community. We want to say, no, you come and you be with me, you be with us, even if you aren't just like me. And so, this is how it applies. See, table fellowship shows complete inclusion into the inner life of the Christian community. And that's the way it was then. Table fellowship, being around the table with other Christians, is that important. It shows inclusion to the inner life of the Christian community. It's where all those who make a profession of faith in Jesus belong. And so we experience a little bit of this when we do communion. In a very small way, every five weeks, Promise Church does communion. And we come together and we, and we share the bread and the grape juice because, you know, we're teetotalers as a denomination. And so we, we do that and we say, okay. So we share, we share these elements and we, we open it up and we say, you are welcome to join with us you know, we as a church must never stratify, stratify our categories of acceptance and belonging by any other markers other than the faith in Jesus. Because placing expectations on people beyond the faith in Jesus is worthy of condemnation from Scripture. It's worthy of condemnation from Scripture. So placing external expectations on people that go beyond faith into conformity with our cultural standards degrades the gospel. So if we say, oh, well, you know, and nobody would say it out loud, but if, if we happen to say, oh, well, you don't dress as nicely as us, or you are of a different, you know, whatever, in, in some way you're different, and therefore we say, oh, well, you can't belong here, we actually argue that, that Jesus' death and resurrection wasn't enough wasn't enough for inclusion. And that stands against the gospel. Which is why, as a church, we must stand on faith in the faithfulness of Jesus. We must stand on that and say, that is what we believe in. And if you say, yes, I put faith in the faithfulness of Jesus, 
I don't care what you look like. I don't care what you sound like. I don't care what you smell like. I don't care anything. You belong. You belong here. That is what it is. And so, this is really important. You know, um, Victoria on Slack just said, in addition to the invitation, we need to be open to the flaws of others. You know, that is such a great deal. She gives an example, says, I remember my mom had been praying for a friend of hers to come to church for years and built a relationship that eventually led to this friend coming to church with us. And we, while sitting in the sanctuary, the friend used a swear word, and the person behind them shamed her for it. Oh, you don't use that type of language in the house of God. The person was ashamed, never returned. See, we have these exclusions, these moments that we say, wait, you don't really belong here. This is what Paul is confronting, what Paul is saying, no, that is not acceptable. We need to, wow, thank you. Victoria is on fire. We need to place the value of relationships above our comfort. Amen. Amen. You know, that is such a big deal. And so, Paul makes a strong judgment. Cephas stood condemned. In verse 11, we saw that. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. See, Paul judged Cephas and found him condemned. The judgment's not about whether Cephas belonged, about whether he was a Christian any longer, but it was about protecting the the integrity of the gospel of Jesus. Paul had influence. Cephas had influence. Paul had been given a mission to the message to the Gentiles. See, Antioch, we need to understand geography for for a second. We've got Jerusalem, and above Jerusalem, about 60 kilometers north, you have Antioch. And Antioch was seen as the northern church base of Christianity. It was more Gentile-focused than the church in Jerusalem because of the population there. And so what had been agreed on in the Jewish world of Jerusalem had these unspoken expectations of that's what would continue in Antioch. But when Cephas came to Antioch, or when the people from James came to Antioch and saw that indeed it wasn't happening like that, well, that's what this whole discussion and this whole conflict comes about. What does it look like? So Paul saw a visible shift happen that Paul understood the implications of. Okay, so Paul's projecting the trajectory of Cephas's action. He's projecting where does it go? What happens if Cephas's action is con- of exclusion is to continue? What happens if as a promised church, we do not address it if we exclude somebody like Victoria's story excluded somebody? What happens to us as a church? The same thing would have happened to the church in Antioch and the church in Galatia. Paul's projecting that, that uh, uh, Traject, or he's projecting the trajectory of the continued action. If Cephas' action continues, the message of the gospel to the Gentiles actually becomes threatened because the message of access to the promise of God is tied back to nationalism. It's tied back to those kashrut laws. It's tied back to, to these things that we do in order to get God's approval the religious 
system of any religion is what does the human need to do to get God's approval, and Christianity blows that up because it says God has been pursuing you, God is changing you, and God is the one who is working in you. And so, so we see that, that the marker of inclusion is, about circum- is, is not any longer about circumcision, but the marker of inclusion is now faith in Jesus because God has done the work. Faith in the faithfulness of Jesus. Jesus has come to be the Savior of the world, to do what no religious system could do, which was connect you to God. That is a threat if we say no to really be included in God's promises, you have to conform to our standards. That's why Paul sees Cephas's actions as a threat, because it undermines the gospel. Are, are there actions today that if they continue to threaten, or if they continue that they threaten the core of the gospel? There absolutely are. There are actions that we do that, that tend to mark us for inclusion, that create barriers for other people so that they can't access. We need, as a Christian community, to put those barriers down and to be adamant and radical that it is the faithfulness of Jesus through his submission to to the Holy Spirit and obedience to death, even death on a cross, and we're going to get to that. And we will, we will see that it is through the faithfulness of Jesus that we place our hope. That's how we get to God. Anything that makes faith in Jesus insufficient to access the promise of God is a threat to the gospel. Oh yeah, you have faith in Jesus, but what you really need is... My father went to church one day. And I think I've reflected before that, you know, we, we, that I grew up poor. And my father wanted to be a greeter at the church because he was active in, the, in his church community and a full believer. He believed, he still believes with all of his heart in the faithfulness of Jesus. He is included in Christianity. And so he applied to be an usher in the church that he'd been going to. And he was rejected because he didn't have a blazer that he could wear on a Sunday morning. He did not own a blazer because his profession, his his financial situation never required him to have a blazer. And an arbitrary barrier sets up to say, if you truly want to be included... You have to look like us. My dad was rightfully irate because of the pure hypocrisy in that. It's 100% an ar- a heart issue, as someone wrote, that we need to recognize and ask God to change us in the innermost dark parts of our hearts. The truth is, that we need to repent. We need to repent of saying that we have the corner on the market. Anytime that we put any type of barrier in place, we need to repent and say that we 
do not have the corner on the market to how to access God, but God has the corner on the market, and he did it in the person of Jesus. If you place your faith in the faithfulness of Jesus, you will be saved, and you are fully included. And so, you know, your faith that brings you inclusion into God's promise is this. Jesus has saved you from the evil and has brought you to God. Jesus is saving you from evil and is bringing you to God. And Jesus will remove all evil and present us pure and spotless before God. See, the promises that God has made is that he will make all things right and he will live with us. That is God's work that he invites us to partner in from wherever we are. He invites us to partner in and includes us in the promise. We are called to love the unlovable, to include those people into the promise. Whatever the unlovable might mean in your comfort zone, we're called to include them. See, a lot of times we make decisions through consensus. Most, you know, most translations have Cephas as being Peter because of reasons, you know, and so if Cephas is Peter, then Peter had agreed what Paul's message was in Jerusalem. He said, oh yeah, the Gentiles are part of us because of the work of Jesus. In Antioch, he eats with them and he lives like them. You know, but, the cha but that changes when the Jews came from James, which would be from Jerusalem. It changes when those people come and influence Cephas. That's kind of like that grade five story that I started off with. The cool people came and Cephas is influenced. Oh yeah, you were good enough for me now, but now you're not good enough. Cephas's actions were influenced by outsiders. And when the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically, hypocritically along with him. Oh, sorry, that was thir 13. I'm supposed to read 12. Uh, for before a certain man came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they, when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. You know, there was that Jewish expectation that Jews don't, don't, don't share table fellowship. And so Jews, Cephas is saying to the newly com Gentile converts that these Jews are the real people of God, so I can't eat with you. Are our actions influenced by the arrival of others? Are your actions influenced? A couple days ago, I was walking down the street, and there were these girls that were yammering, and they were talking back and forth, totally breaking COVID protocol, but I didn't really care because they were outside on a walk, and they needed it. And they're talking back and forth, and as I approach them on the sidewalk, they're walking towards me, and about two houses away, they shut up completely. My presence influenced their actions. They walked by, and as soon as they were past me, by four, by four steps, they were yammering again fully. I get it. That's normal social behavior. Our, our actions are influenced by the presence of others. But are your actions that are core to the gospel influenced? Are you unwilling to speak about the truth that you believe in in the presence of those who do not believe because you don't know how to or you don't know what to say? Are your actions influenced by the presence of others? And are, is your silence actually an act of exclusion? Does your silence become an act of exclusion where, where I remember my wife 
just as we were engaged and we were talking about our history, Valerie told me a story about when, when she was trying to find a way to be involved in a church youth group, but nobody would invite her to one. Do your actions of silence create barriers to the gospel? They can. You know, we are definitely influenced by the actions of others, and so we determine what's right by common consensus, and that's obvious. But we need to strengthen our faith to a place where we can say, my actions are not going to be influenced by the presence of others. In fact, my actions will influence the actions of others. My open invitation to believing in the faithfulness of Jesus for our salvation and for all things to be made right can influence others. Cephas's action caused others to doubt if sharing table fellowship was actually okay. In verse 13, it says, all the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them so that even Barnabas was led away by the hypocrisy. It seems that people may not have been aware because even Barnabas, who was present in Jerusalem, he started acting differently. See, Paul needs to confront this because it is inconsistent with the gospel he's preaching. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before all of them, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Table fellowship is a sign of inclusion in God's promises. If inclusion requires more than faith in Jesus, Jesus' death and resurrection is in vain. It's the core argument of the book of Galatians. Right here, we've seen everything set up. We're seeing it come to a, to, to a, a central point that says the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus is enough. It is enough to make all things right between humanity and with God. It is enough to bring humans back into relationship with God. Jesus' death and re resurrection is enough to allow the presence of God to live with us even today as we watch this broadcast. God's presence is with you because of faith in the faithfulness of Jesus. And so, this is what we rely on. We must understand our faith, or we will be swayed by anything that comes along. See, a really important question that God asked, or that, that, that got asked, not God asked, got asked, is, who would Jesus have hung out with if he was on the planet right now? Would he have hung out with the churchgoers? Or would he hung out with the people who live next to you? Your neighbors. Your neighbor's neighbors. The strange guy down the street that doesn't mow his lawn enough. Who would Jesus hang out with? And how can we reflect that in our community. Jesus' work is central to our hope, and so we must consider how we hold to it, communicate it, and allow it to be accessible to others and to give them the grace to be included. Maybe we look for the grace to be included into their life. God, I just pray for humility for us as a congregation. God, I pray that we would hold 
You is central. Your work, Jesus, is central. God, I pray that you would reveal to us the amount that you pursue us. Your act of work is to chase after us. And it is by your grace that we respond to you and we say, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Thank you, Jesus, for your work. <clears throat> God, I'm reminded of communities that are suffering and people who are suffering in communities. And this morning, because, you know, we heard the news, especially out in, in Mount Albert, the news of this tragic uh, incident of, of murder and stabbings. God, I pray for that community in Mount Albert as one of our congregation members lives just a couple streets away. God, I pray that your hand would be on that street, those streets, that you would be pursuing them and that we would have eyes to see in what ways you are pursuing. God, I pray for our towns, Hall Landing, Keswick, Bradford, Beaton, Bolton, Newmarket. God, I just pray that as you would reach into them. God, I pray that, your eye, that our eyes would be opened to your work. I pray that you would allow us to see your pursuit, your salvation. And Jesus, I pray that you would allow us to remove barriers of entry. In Jesus' name, amen. May God bless you this week and may he keep you. May his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. God bless.